At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Well, if you, uh, if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn it to the, uh, the book of Romans. We're continuing our series through that. Well, if you're here and you have a, a set of eyes you probably saw, or a set of ears, you probably saw the baptism just happened a few minutes ago. Um, I love, love, love baptisms. Oftentimes, I see volunteers who are serving in other capacities, and they're not able to join in worship, and they see a baptism happening, and they beeline it to those doors just so they can see uh, God's work in the people's lives, whoever is baptized. Uh, the reason I love baptisms is because everybody has a story, right? We all come from different backgrounds, and it's just amazing to see God's faithfulness within each person's life. And so in a way, a baptism is a story, and every story has a beginning, middle, and end. I don't know if you knew that, but every story has a beginning, middle, and end. And so the Woodside teaching team uh, had the privilege of learning under a man named Dallas Jenkins. Now, this man is the storyteller and creator of the multi-season show, The Chosen. This is a multi-season show about the life of Jesus and his disciples. And so we, we learned under this man is specifically relating to sermon planning and preaching. And he's, a, he's an amazing storyteller without using any visual, not many visual effects uh, the show has become so popular because of the stories, because of the way they tell specific stories. And so he says, follow this formula and you're bound to have an amazing story. It goes, I was, but God, and now. It starts, I was, but God, and now. Think about your life. Any story that follows that is bound to be amazing. So let's follow that formula. And uh, I have a couple of examples right here. It's, this story is, is very touching. I lived in Ohio. God helped me get a new job, which moved me to Michigan. And now I'm a diehard Michigan football fan. Wow. That's, um, that's touching. That's touching, right? I probably, please don't leave. I promise there's better things in this sermon. Another one, another story. It says, I was plagued with fear and insecurity, but God intervened put men in my life to guide me, encourage me, and teach me. He gave me confidence, a passion, a desire to bring others to himself. And now I'm the outreach pastor at Woodside Bible Church in Warren. It's me. What's your story? He's bound to have something amazing in your life. And so we're going we're gonna to follow that story. But we're continuing through a series in Romans entitled New-ish. New-ish. The tagline is, everything has changed, have you. And when you accept Christ, the Apostle Paul shares what kind of good news you have adopted into your life. There is good news. He has changed you from the inside out. You are a new creation. God, and so this is what we've learned in the past few weeks, is that God only saves bad people. God only saves bad people. We ask, does that rub you the right way, the wrong way? How does that make you feel? We tore down the classification of saint and sinner. 
We shouldn't classify that. I loved how Jeff put this. We should classify it as the believer and those in need of salvation. Because that gives us a better perspective of, well, they're not just lost, they're in need of salvation. We also learn the wonderful reality that we as Christians have the glorious position of standing in grace. We have received grace from God. And then last week we learned that there is death in Adam, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam, how we have somehow inherited the sin and the death that they brought, and that he is our representative of death. But then also how there is Jesus, and he is our representative of life and salvation and joy. And so now we move today uh, to a chapter of knowing. Paul says, we know in reference to what kind of salvation we have in Jesus. Now, if you just accepted Christ two minutes ago, like, what did I sign up for? What kind of salvation is this? And so Paul jumps in to clarify and describe what kind of salvation you signed up for. Paul's almost like a mother caring for his children in this because he describes the nature of the faith to the Roman church so that they can possess this truth, but not only to, to keep it for themselves, right, but to also act on it later. This comes from a heart of care. It comes from protection and love. And so Paul writes this next, next chapter in chapter 6. And so to do this, Paul is going to turn to our experience of baptism. Fresh in our minds, right? It comes from baptism. What testimony does our baptism display? We'll learn that our walk must match our baptism. Our walk must match our baptism. So what does our baptism mean for our lives? What does it mean? It means, first, that we have died to sin. We have died to sin. So I'm going to start reading in, in verse 1 in chapter 6. Paul starts it out saying, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I'm going to stop right there. We just got going, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to repeat that one more time. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This may be confusing. Um, if you weren't here last week, it's just continuing from the last section that Paul wrote. He just said, where sin increased, over here, where sin is increased, grace increased all the more. Sin increases, grace increases. And so for those of you who don't know, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor, specifically given from God. You don't deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. It was a free gift that God gave. And so if you're thinking about this section logically, right, we're coming from Israel's story, where back in the Old Testament, it said that the law led to an increase of sin, God gave us the Ten Commandments. It's revealed now, oh my goodness, all of these things I've been doing are terrible. It, it, not, not as if sin increased, but our realization of what we are doing is sin. And sin led to an increase of grace. That's what Paul said in chapter 5, verse 20. So increase of sin, increase of grace. Then logically, in our story too, we should increase sinning in order to give God the chance to increase his gracious giving, right? Yes, no, no. So a greater explanation, or actually Paul brings this up in Romans 3.8, and he says, uh, this is a quotation, it's not actually Paul talking, let us do what is evil so that good may come. 
And so this chapter is a defense of these false assumptions. And if, you want, if you're taking notes, you can write down Jude 4. Jude 4. There are certain individuals that turned the grace of God into a license of sinning. Like, man, God is going to cover me with grace, and now I can just go on, go to the streets, and just start sinning because I know God is going to cover me with grace. So it's like uh, the, we call these carnal Christians. They're really not Christians at all. They're, they're people that think they have a license to sin just because God is abounding in grace, right? This is their quotation. If our good works count for nothing and our sinful deeds cause the grace of God to be revealed more, then why do we not go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, maybe, maybe you wouldn't go this far, right? It, obviously, the answer is no. We're not going to continue sinning so that grace may abound. But haven't we all caught ourselves making light of our failures on the notion that God will excuse and forgive them? I've done this in my life. Where, no, I don't sin intentionally just so I give God grace, right? But maybe you make light of the sin that you are in. We have lost the depth and the seriousness of the sin that we are committing. So as an illustration, um, we have two men here. Maybe uh, this... This, this sheet of paper here symbolizes one man. On these sheets of paper is all of the sin that he has ever committed in his entire life. So on here we have adultery, anger, blasphemy, brutality. It's all, it's all uh, alphabetized. Very neat. God is a neat God. But these are all of the sins he's ever committed in his entire life. Only a few sheets. Well, God's grace abounds, right? This is to symbolize God's abounding grace, where you have been covered with grace, and God wipes this clean. So that's one man. Now, camera, don't follow me. So here is an entire dolly of another man, where, if I get this right, no, it's just going to fall. This entire dolly of paper is another man's sins, where if you saw this man on the street, he'd probably go to prison. This entire man's sins are composed in all of these pieces of paper. Everything he's ever done is written on these pieces of paper. Now, God's abounding grace acts in this way, where this man is covered with grace, it's erased. This man is covered with grace, is it erased? Absolutely. And that's the amazing, abounding grace of the God that we serve. That no matter how big of a sinner that you are, God will forgive you. And that is amazing. And so two different men, covered by grace, now these pages are wiped clean. Every single sin that you've ever done can be forgiven by God, and that is his abounding grace. So, well, Paul, you just finished saying that God has an abundance of grace that he gives to us abundantly, so why didn't I just live and sin however I want and then abundantly take or abuse God's grace? Well, Paul actually answers this question in the next section. In verse uh, 2 to 4, it says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We might walk in newness of life. 
So Paul doesn't want the Roman church to get this critical truth of sin and grace wrong. He says, absolutely not. Should we keep sinning? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We died to sin is what he said. That's a past action. And how can we live in it any longer? And that is a future or an ongoing tense. How could we continue in sin? I don't often uh, quote the Message Bible. It's not as accurate as a lot of other translations, but it gives a great visualization of this section of Scripture. Listen to this. It said, If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or did you not realize that we packed up and left there for good? Isn't that good? Like, if we, are, if we left that country, how can we possibly go back to that? There's no possible way. For a Christian, someone who has been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, continuing to live in sin is not only bad, it's not only immoral, it's contradictory to the new life that you have been given. So by the grace of God, you have died to sin. That is, you have renounced your allegiance to your sinful self. A commentator says, we who have died to sin, how could we live in sin any longer? How could we? It is good for God's grace to be revealed more and more, but not if it happens as a result of your license to sin. So as another illustration, cicadas and butterflies. You think about a butterfly, right? It starts out as a caterpillar. It goes in its cocoon, or I'm sure there's a better term for that, and then it eventually turns into a butterfly. Cicadas, has anybody seen a cicada this last summer? Attached to them, themselves to trees in your house. Has anybody seen any brood X cicadas? I have not. Praise God, they're not in Michigan. Maybe on the East Coast. Anyways, a cicada, it, it eventually attaches itself, it sheds its outer shell, and it's gone. Can you put that, old, that new cicada back in its old shell? Absolutely not. Can you turn that butterfly back into the caterpillar that it once was? Absolutely not. It doesn't work. You can't do that. It wouldn't work. It is a new creation. It's an entirely new being. Everything has changed. And so this is what it's like when you identify with Jesus' death in baptism. It's a declaration that when you are baptized, it's almost as if you are a completely new person, that death is gone. It's like you're saying this, sin, you are nothing to me. You're dead to me. I renounce you, I unidentify with you, and I identify with Christ and his death. Is that not what we're saying? Is that what you're saying this morning? Those that believe they are free to sin betray what their salvation meant. So what does baptism actually mean? If you're taking notes, baptism means first, it's union with Christ. It's a union with Christ. Being a Christian involves a personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ. And that means that we are dramatically unified with him, set forth in baptism. This is what is meant when Paul says we are baptized into Christ Jesus, that you identify with him wholly. It's also a symbolic death. When somebody is dunked in the water, that is a symbolic death. In Christ's sacrifice, he died so that we may have new life. Not only that, but Christ died instead of us. 
as our substitute so that we will never need to die for our own sins, but also that he died for us as our representative. Somebody needed to pay for the sin that we have committed. Whether or not you are this man or that man, you need to die for the sins that you have committed. But guess what? Christ has taken our place. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. One person describes how our baptism is sort of a funeral, that we have died to sin. It is a funeral. What baptism doesn't mean is, is that it is uh, the same as salvation. Paul just got finished describing three earlier chapters about how justification or just us being saved is through faith alone. It would be completely out of the ordinary for Paul all of a sudden just to shift and say, well, you also need to be baptized too. You know, imagine somebody who just was saved and they just died, but they weren't baptized. What does that mean for their life? You are saved by faith alone. Baptism is a symbol of the new life that is within you. So Paul's words, even to the Philippian jailer, connect salvation and baptism more clearly. It says in uh, Acts 16, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. Baptism is the response to the new life that you have. Does that make sense? So... Have you made this fundamental shift in your own life? Have you renounced sin in your life? Is it disgusting to you? Have you died to sin? If so, you are a brand new creation. And we praise God for that. Maybe you've prayed that prayer a long time ago and you haven't noticed any changes in your life since then. Well, maybe do a mental and a spiritual check this afternoon, this week, to see if you have died to your sin, if you belong to Christ Jesus. And then maybe you haven't made that shift yet at all. I encourage you to do that today. See what life is like with Christ. It's a thousand times better. And if you do identify with Christ and with Christ's death, have you been baptized to symbolize this? I would love to baptize everybody in this room, not as a means of salvation, but as a celebration of the work that Christ has done in your heart. Please connect with the welcome desk or our next steps class so you can understand baptism a little bit better. But we'd love for you to take the next step in your faith and take the next step in this church as well. So in our baptism, our testimony declares that we died to sin. It's not all doom and gloom, right? If you don't leave discouraged. But not only that, but also we rose to new life. Paul continues in verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Is that encouraging to you? The believer's union in death implies that we are also united in Jesus in his resurrection. Look at the key word at the very end of uh, verse 7. It says, we shall certainly be united. It is certain. You belong to Christ Jesus. It is certain that you will be raised into new life. 
This means that in the here and now, we walk in newness of life. Not new-ish, newness. You are a new creation. You haven't somewhat changed. You are a new person. It means in the future when Christ returns also that our physical bodies will be resurrected as well. So we are, we are, the resurrection changes how we live today in the here and now, and it changes how we view the future, giving us hope uh, for eternal and resurrected life. This should be good news. It's not just we died to sin, but we have been raised And that is the bringing up of the person out of the waters. You have been raised to new life. Paul continues in verse 6 and 7. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul, I'm going to bring this out. A couple things that he says here is the old self or the body of sin. He's referring to who we were before Christ. The old self, that old person. If you are a new creation right now, think about that person that you were before Christ. Think about that person. Is he or she different? What, what, did, they, what did they do? How did they act? How did they talk? What do they do? How do they uh, converse with people? What were their temptations? Are you that person anymore? And so that past version of yourself is truly gone. You are a new creation. Like this is the good news of the gospel. Christ has changed you. But does this mean that those past temptations or struggles will never ever come back? Paul says you are no longer enslaved to sin. And then he also wrote that you have died to sin. This almost seems like sin is no longer in your life. You are a new creation. Sin is no longer. Well, believe it or not, this was written to all Christians, not just those uh, random Christians who don't have any struggles or temptations, as if they actually exist, right? Does anybody in this room struggle with any sin? Absolutely. This is a room of imperfect sinners that Christ has brought into his kingdom, it does not necessarily mean that you won't struggle. Freed from sin doesn't necessarily mean you won't struggle. And so does Paul mean in this present life the believer can reach such perfection that they won't commit any sin? They won't do any of that terrible things that they did before? He doesn't. And this fallacy uh, was taught anywhere else in Scripture. It's Matthew 6, 12 and Romans 7 there's a vast difference between um, committing a sin and then living and delighting in that sin, right? If you delight in that sin, you need to check your heart. But if you just commit a sin and you fight against it, that is a good indicator that the Spirit is within you, that you no longer delight in sin, but now we are fighting against it. If it were true, it would be unnecessary for the Apostle Paul to tell us, spoiler alert, this is next week, uh, later he says, to not let sin reign in our body so that we obey its evil desires. He says that just a little bit later, as if Christians actually struggle, which they do. Have you ever felt like sin is reigning in your body? It is okay to struggle with temptation, but you have died to sin. You are a new creation, 
and now you are fighting against sin in your life. What God ultimately wants eliminated from our life is a, mark, is a life marked by habitual sin, you know, like sin's tyranny over our body. We have shattered our original and natural God-given instincts. We have degraded or downgraded sleepiness into sloth. We have turned hunger into greed and sexual desire into lust. We have done that to ourselves. God has created amazing beings, but we ourselves have shot us in the foot. Verse 6 describes the progression of God's desire for your life. And I'm going to turn it upside down. We're going to read it in, in opposite order. The best way is to understand God's ultimate plan. His ultimate plan for your life is to free you from sin and its tyranny over your life. How does that happen? To do away with the body of sin. And how do you do that? It's done by crucifying the body on the cross. Our liberation from sin happens when the price has been paid. As I said before, there needs to be punishment for the sins that we have committed. But guess what? You don't have to do that. The only way to be justified from sin is that the wages of sin be paid, either by the sinner or another scapegoat. And that scapegoat of ours is Jesus Christ. He died for sinners like you and me. Christ has paid the price Galatians 2.20, I'm going to read this verse. It is beautiful. If you're not listening, listen now, because this is the word of God, and it's so good. It says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right there. Imagine a, uh, somebody who's sent to prison, how does that prisoner get out of prison? When he's, when he's either posted bail or he's served his life sentence, only by going to prison and serving your life sentence is, is how you pay the penalty of your crime. Once they've served their crime, he may live prison justified. And so just as death is from sin, sometimes I think we, we like being in the prison, being enslaved to sin. We wouldn't admit it, but we don't actually understand what's outside of the gates of prison. Because once we're finally out, we understand how good life is in the presence of God and how our old self was just filled with guilt and shame. This is a new life. You have been freed. You are no longer slaves. And so I started this sermon by um, explaining stories about how there's a formula for beautiful stories I was, but God, and now. And so we, we end with entering the story of a man. This man was a murderer. He was actually praised for it. In the society, he probably would have been sent to prison, but he was actually praised for it in his day. Well, eventually, God struck him down. He was incapacitated and in bed for days, only to realize what he had done. He was Finally, at his knees, at, the, at his wit's end, and a, a fellow believer came and led him to Jesus Christ. After he had accepted Christ, this newfound faith propelled him to become one of the greatest evangelists of all time, one of the greatest authors of all time, and he just so happened to have written the book of Romans. It was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the section of Scripture, was a murderer of Christians, 
But God met him where he was at, and he changed him from the inside out. Listen, God can change you. I don't know what kind of person you are. Maybe you're not a murderer, but you are a sinner in need of a savior, and God can change you. So what's your story? God has the ability to change you. This is a, uh, a snapshot of Romans 6 right here. I'm just going to read this. This is from uh, John Stott. For us, then, it is like this. We deserve to die for our sins. And in fact, we did die, though not ourselves, but in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died in our place. And it's him who we are united with in faith and in baptism. Only through the risen Christ have we also risen again. So the old life of sin is finished because we died to it. And the new life of saved sinners has begun. It is in this sense that our sinful self has been deprived of power and we have been set free. Have you been set free this morning? I love that. What Romans 6 teaches is that Jesus' death and resurrection were not only historical events or important doctrines, which a lot of people look to Romans for doctrine and it's good, but have you personally experienced Jesus' death and resurrection? It is a personal, vital experience for everybody to go through. It can happen to you. It can happen to you right in this second. If you've not yet accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes the old man into a new, it's possible right here and now. Get on your knees and ask Jesus to come into your heart because life is a thousand times better, right? He can make even the worst of sinners into a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. If not for any reason, is just to see your amazing power within our lives. I thank you for this section of scripture, for allowing Paul to write this, a murderer in his past. It's amazing to see how you can change someone from the inside out. Father, we're grateful for your work in his life. We're thankful for the work within our own lives. And Father, if there's anybody in this room who needs you, I pray that that would happen right now. I pray for salvation for the lost. Thank you for saving us sinners. Thank you for being our substitute. When we deserve to die, you sit in our place. And all we can say is thank you. We worship you. We, we love you. Jesus, we're thankful for this section of scripture that is so meaningful to our lives. Father, help us to live lives that are changed. Help us to act like new creations. Though we may struggle with sins, Lord, I pray that, it would, that we would continue to sin less and less so that we may see you fully. I pray that you would empower the spirit within us to spread this message to those who are in need of salvation. Jesus, we need you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.